recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Gunnier on Talk Show. Today is um, Friday, December 18th, I think, 2013. I'm sorry, Friday, January 18th. That shows you where my head's at. I apologize. At least I had the year right. We don't have to listen. live through 12-21-12 again. Tonight I'm going to talk about um, Christian socialism. That 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 um, I did a program here a couple of weeks ago with, with Storm with, with Sword Brethren on Christian nationalism and talked about socialism and, and actually did present a lot of the material I'm going to present here tonight. I think it's important to drive these points home. I am affronted by clowns who assert that all socialism is evil, who do not and cannot distinguish between true Christian socialism and Talmudic Marxism. Because all they have ever read is Jewish propaganda, academic or otherwise. These same clowns equate German National Socialism to Marxism, or to something encroaching upon Marxism. And they also equate the Marxist social doctrine of late, late churchianity to original German or Christian socialism. Things which are not at all similar. They are all caught like flies in a tarantula's web of Jewish thinking and Jewish propaganda. Chances are, if you ask them what should replace capitalism, they may say nothing. They accept capitalism as the, the inevitably correct system because that's all they know. Or they may say free enterprise, and, and they have a vague idea of what that means. But they will most often not be able to actually describe any differences. I, I had a conversation with another Christian identity pastor last week who, who told me that Hitler's National Socialism was Marxism, it was evil. I had another conversation with a different um, Christian. He, he calls himself, he doesn't call himself Christian identity, but he, he, he's close. Pastor earlier this week who told me that there was no difference between Marxism and National Socialism, that National Socialism was only incremental Marxism, and, and it, it's both of those men are, are, even though they understand some of the truths or most of the truths about the Bible, about modern history and, and about economics, they're absolutely clueless. It, it's a shame. I, I mean, to what extent should one imagine that the Jews, capitalists and otherwise, have polluted the entire academic realm, have polluted all of our thinking in every facet, in every um, political science, in, in economics, in, in political theory, in, in social theory. They, they've polluted it all. And if you read their material you're going to come out thinking like them, no matter how much you read. In my Revelation commentary in chapters 14 and 16, 
which appear on Christogenia and in my book, Christreich. I wrote that the new god of the 19th century is capitalism. And with that, that free enterprise, and by it I mean true free enterprise, is endangered and shall succumb to an entirely usury-based economy. Right, the usury-based economy we live under, where the certain Jews have license to print all of our money, that's not free enterprise. You'd have to be an idiot to think that was free enterprise. Well, when a certain cartel of Jews print all the world's money and demand usury for it, that's not free enterprise. It's not free at all. You're a slave. Free enterprise is endangered and shall succumb to an entirely usury-based economy organized under capitalism and orchestrated by the Jewish banking families of Europe, notably the Rothschilds. Under a usury-based capitalist economy, the enemies of Christ would gain more and more power and influence, enabling them to finance ever stronger attacks against Christendom from within rather than from without. And I wrote that in relation to the prophecies in Revelation chapters 14 through 16 and my interpretation of them and, and what they were warning us about and telling us. And I, I wrote that in relationship to the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 16. Because of the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 16, as I explained, men take upon themselves. And, and that worship of that beast in Revelation chapter 16 is basically the worship of Jewish globalism and, and, and multiculturalism and, and everything that we see in the world today. And a great part of that is the Jewish capitalist system. Yet there are many capitalists even in Christian identity. They just don't get it. And mostly because they have nothing else in their experience besides the generally perceived struggle between capitalist, capitalism and Marxism, which is also communism. That's all they understand. They're caught in that dichotomy. This program is really an extension of and an elaboration upon the Christianity is National program done here a few weeks ago, which I actually did with Sword Brethren. The first part of this program will repeat some of the things said in that program. There will be other such programs over the months to come. Yahweh God, be willing. One cannot... And this is important for us to understand, and we all know that Babylon's going to fall under its own weight. But we are all, um, at least the, the, the two seed line Christian identity people in my immediate circles, and, and some other friends who aren't, we are all advocates of tearing down the evil system. Or, or, or in our case, watching that it, watching it fall. And most of them have no understanding of what should replace it. And if capitalism and communism, as we know them, are not Christian, then Christians must understand exactly what sort of economic model 
is Christian so that they cannot be fooled by either of the others. Firstly, Christians need to reject all of the economic debates framed by the Jews since they keep us locked in the false dichotomy between communist Marxism and usury capitalism. Therefore, traditional liberal versus conservative debates in this country and, and in Europe, those debates are all useless and vain, every single one of them. And everyone who engages in them is playing by the rules written by the Jew. All of the so-called great thinkers who engage on these terms, liberal versus conservative, socialist versus whatever, conservative, neocon, um, free enterprise, if, if it's within the paradigm of usury capitalism, you're debating on terms created by the Jew. All of those so-called great thinkers engaging on those terms are really only acting as mouthpieces for the Jew, whether they realize it or not. They are not thinkers that they're esteemed to be. If they were really the thinkers they were esteemed to be, they would realize that while Marxist communism is evil, so is usury capitalism evil. They're both two arms of the same beast, and their origin is found in the Talmud. We have to reject all those debates. Don't get caught up in that, in, in that bullshit. Yeah, I'm going to call it that. Liberal versus um, conservative and, 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 and all of those mainstream paradigms, that they're all a, that, that's all a stage. And the people making the arguments on either side, they're just mannequins. Because the Jew has, has devised Marxist communism and, and, and called it socialism, and that's the only socialism we understand. And because the Jew has devised usury capitalism, and in the minds of most Americans, it's confused with free enterprise. The word socialism is a dirty word in many Christian nationalist and other so-called conservative or right-wing circles today. And of course, most people in Christian identity identify themselves as right-wing or conservative uh, only because even though the whole world lies under the power of the devil, we'd rather have it as it lied 200 years ago, probably. Things were a lot better than they are now but we've slid a lot further down the slippery slope. There are two reasons for that. There are two reasons for why socialism is a dirty word amongst Christians today, amongst most um, normal-thinking right-wing Christians, if I have to call them that. First, as opposed to liberal, um, nigger-loving, left-wing Christians, right? 
First, for over a hundred years and until this very day, the word has been used as a euphemism for Marxism, a euphemism for Bolshevik communism, if the two may be distinguished, because the practice was even much more sinister than the theory. This use of socialism as a euphemism for Marxism and communism seems to have been preponderated by the Jewish media in order to conceal the true nature of these Jewish ideologies. However, the word socialism and the original ideas that it once represented are much older than Marxism and bear little, re little real resemblance to it. Secondly, many Christian nationalists are still locked into the Jewish capitalist versus communist dichotomy and have trouble thinking on any other terms. So long as they stay there, they shall never be a threat to the intentions of the Jew since both modern capitalism and modern communism are inventions of the Jew. The capitalist system has enabled world Jewry to slowly feed off of the labor and resources of the nations which admit it, while the communist system has enabled world Jewry to rapidly subsume the resources and the lifeblood of those nations which became its victims. The capitalist system is designed to infiltrate, corrupt, and control nations with pliant rulers or other malleable systems such as parliamentary democracies, which can be bought for a price quite easily. And the communist system has seized power violently wherever firm rulers do not allow the capitalist system to gain control. It is capitalists the international Jewish bankers who have financed communism, wherever it has appeared. Adolf Hitler warned, of this, warned us of that, and we did not listen. They financed communism as retribution against nations wherever the rule of those bankers is rejected. When either system fails to seize a nation, then the international Jew wages war against it from the outside through those nations which he does control. Such was the case in Europe during the Second World War. From the ashes of the old feudal system, which the French Revolution destroyed for good, arose many theories of political and economic organization among thinking men, most of whom were schooled in the philosophers of the Enlightenment, which wasn't necessarily a good thing, right? One such theory was National Socialism, which was actually postulated by French, French philosophers a century before Adolf Hitler had put such a theory into practice in Germany, probably more than a century. Marx did not create socialism. Rather, he pilfered it. He stole it. And he used it 
He used the label as a euphemism for his Talmudic perversion. And when I said before that the the um, Jewish media preponderated the euphemism, well, I was speaking the truth. Journalists in the United States should have seen the difference. Journalists in the West as a whole should have seen the difference between Marxism and real socialism. And they didn't. They, they accepted or they purposely allowed or, or purposely perpetrated the use of the word socialism as a euphemism for Marxism, and they preponderated it. It was actually stated in the Communist Manifesto by Marx himself that he was contriving a new kind of socialism. And Marx himself, in the Communist Manifesto, it's posted on the Mein Kampf Project website at Christagenia.org, derided what he called Christian, bourgeois, and German socialism. Marx hated Christian socialism. He hated German socialism. And he contrived his own Talmudic system of, uh, of violent collectivism and, and forced collectivism, and he labeled it as a new kind of socialism, along with the other evil elements of his political system. Other systems, such as syndicalism and fascism, were based upon the original socialism in one degree or another. Yet, Christian nationalists, primarily because of the way in which the Jewish theorists and their media had poisoned the term, and also because of their own entrapment in the Jewish capitalist versus communist dichotomy, have also failed to notice that as it was originally conceived, socialism had Christian foundations. Not Marxist socialism, original German Christian socialism had Christian foundations. Furthermore, national socialism, as it was implemented by Adolf Hitler's Germany, was based entirely upon Christian principles. And it is absolutely contrary to Marxism. Anybody who thinks otherwise has not read original documentations. They have their brains full of Jewish bullshit. In that regard, I received a, um, a kind private message a couple of weeks ago in the Christiania Forum from a young man who had been listening to the series I did on the Mein Kampf Project website, the series of podcasts I did two years ago with Sword Brethren, his response to that series was, anyone claiming to be CI that doesn't sympathize with National Socialist Germany should be treated as suspect. Now, I would agree, except that I do understand that there are a lot of good CI people that all they've ever read, they think they're well-read, but all they've ever read was the PAP from Anglo-American academics concerning 
World War II and National Socialist Germany. If all you've read is that garbage which Anglo-American academics spew about Adolf Hitler, National Socialism, the beginnings of World War II and Germany, then all you're reading is exactly what the Jews want you to believe. All you're reading is what the Jews want you to read. I suggest that you take your Christian identity knowledge and apply it to the rest of your life. National Socialism, as it was implemented by Adolf Hitler's Germany, was based entirely upon Christian principles, and it is absolutely contrary to Marxism. So long as Christians remain inside the box which the Jewish political theorists have constructed for them, they will forever remain blind and obedient slaves to the world's foremost usurers and pillagers. The following passages from the book of Acts demonstrate Christian community from the King James Version. Sir, I can't be accused of bias. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they continued, speaking of the first Christian communities under the hand of the apostles, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such should be saved. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any one of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. Was his own. But they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, 
having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here the example of true Christian communion is given, to which must be compared Josephus' account of nearly identical practices among the Essenes, found in his Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, Chapter 8, Parts 2 and 3, or under the Loeb Library numbering system, Book 2, Lines 119 through 122. I'm only going to read line 122. I'm sorry. These men, the Essenes, are despisers of riches and so very communicative as raises our admiration. Nor is there anyone to be found among them who has more than another. For it is law among them that those who come to them must let what they have be common to the whole order insomuch that among them all there is found no appearance of poverty or excess of riches. But everyone's possessions are intermingled with everyone's possessions. And so there is, as it were, one patrimony among all the brethren. Now aside from being socialist, and, and we've explained that many times here at Christogenia, Christianity is also nationalist as we also Talk Street dropped me again. That's um, about four or five programs in a row that I've been dropped at least once after not being dropped for about two years, possibly, or a year and a half. It had been a while. If I didn't know any better, I'd think it was a conspiracy. Aside from being socialist, Christianity is also nationalist, as we discussed here in the June 2012 Sex and Messenger editorial and a program about five or six weeks ago of a similar title, Christianity is Nationalism. That Christianity is indeed nationalist can be determined, can be demonstrated with fornication, of which race mixing is one form, is forbidden Christians in Acts chapter 15. That race, mixing, that race mixing is a form of fornication is readily demonstrated from Jude, verse 7, and from 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, where Paul explicitly warns against fornication and references a race mixing event from the Old Testament, Numbers chapters 24 through 26, in order to substantiate his warning. Jude 7, in Jude 7, the apostle defines fornication as the pursuit of different flesh. Christianity must be nationalist since Christ professed coming only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew 15, 24. 
And since, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, the nations of the promise are only those nations which sprang from the seed of Abraham, from the offspring, the loins of Abraham, which he identifies throughout his epistles. Now, if Christianity is nationalist, then Christian community must also be nationalist. It must be nationalist first. The Essenes, as Josephus attests elsewhere, were also nationalists. While the sects of the Pharisees and Sadducees sought proselytes and traveled far and wide for those proselytes, the Essenes were the only Judean sect which required its members to be Judean by birth where the Greek word genos means ethnic birth and not geographical birth. The translators of Josephus would have done better to write Judeans by race in our modern understanding. Christians are told to reject those who have rejected Christ. And therefore, neither should Christian community nor Christian fellowship be extended to non-Christians. From the epistles of John, where the apostle was speaking in the context of the Roman world of his time, 2 John 9-11, whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come anyone unto you, and brings not this doctrine, receive him not into your house. You have no Christian community with that person. Neither bid him Godspeed, which means neither greet him. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. So Christianity is nationalism, and Christian community must be limited to fellow Christians. The word common, as it appears in Acts chapter 2, in verse 44, and in Acts chapter 4, in verse 32, which we've just read, is from the Greek word koinos, which means common, shared in common. The word koinos is related to the word which was translated fellowship in the King James Version at Acts 2.42, which is koinonia which is communion, association, partnership, or fellowship. The Roman church has distorted the meaning of the word communion in the minds of many people by using it to denote their mystery ritual. The word does not describe any ritual in the New Testament, but rather it intends, as its primary dictionary definition states in an English dictionary, the act of or instance of sharing. Communion means to share things in common with one another. The word koinonia is found 19 times in the Greek New Testament, and in the King James Version it is translated as communion only four of those times. The true mystery is why so few people realize that the body and blood of Christ are actually those Israelites, his kinsmen, sitting around the table, sharing things in common.
and 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 12 both prove that. The word communion is related to the words common, community, and communism. From this basic idea of Christian communion sprang those American states in the, in, in the 17th and 18th centuries, which are designated by the term commonwealth. I'm going to quote 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of eulogy which we bless, is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The wheat bread which we break, is it not the fellowship of the body of Christ? Because one loaf, one body, we the many are, for we all partake from the one loaf, as long as we're a common body and have common blood. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body being many are one body, so also are the anointed, the children of Israel. The Old Testament example of the commonwealth is found in the story of the Exodus. At the collection of manna in the wilderness, and I'll read from the King James Version, Exodus chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. This is the thing which Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it, every man according to his eating, an omer for every man, according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tents. And the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more and some less. And when they did, meet it with an omer, measure it with, a, with an omer, which is a unit of measure. He that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. The entire community had enough to eat, even though some men were more capable gatherers and gathered much more than other men. Christian community. Christianity is nationalism, and Christianity is socialism. However, when it is properly defined, now I'm not talking about Marxism, socialism is a care for and attending to the needs of one's own national community as it was in the Exodus. They wouldn't mete out manna to an Arab or to an Edomite. As it was in the Exodus, although some clearly had the ability to gather more than others, yet everyone was assured enough to eat. The needs of the Christian community outweigh the needs of the individual member. This is the Christian commonwealth. Yet the wealth of the Christian community is not for aliens. Rather, it was considered a curse if an alien aid of those blessings bestowed by God upon the children of Israel. Thus we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, a man to whom God has given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wants nothing for his soul of all that he desires. 
Yet God gives him not the power to eat thereof, but a stranger eats it. This is vanity, and it is an, it is an evil disease. It's considered an evil when strangers, when aliens share in our wealth. It's a curse. Marxism is a curse. The liberal wealth redistribution schemes are a curse. And they're not socialism, not originally. They're Marxist communism. They've been devised against us to raise the aliens, the other races, the non-whites who don't work to earn the material goods that we share with them. It's a scheme devised to raise them to our level so they could bring us down to their level. Marxism is really Talmudism put into economic practice. It was also considered evil to accommodate the sinful. From the wisdom of Sirach in the Apocrypha, chapter 12, verse 6, for the Most High hates sinners and will repay vengeance under the ungodly and keeps them against the mighty day of their punishment. Give unto the good and help not the sinner. For that same reason the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10 from the Christogenia New Testament, you owe to no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Indeed, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not lust. And any other commandment is summarized in this saying, you shall love him near to you as yourself. Love for him near to you who does not practice evil. Therefore, fulfilling of the law is love. And yes, that's what the Greek says, love to him near to you who does not practice evil. We are not required to love unrepentant sinners. Now it must also be noted the Christian community is voluntary. To compel a man to part with his wealth by force, which is what Marxism does, which is what liberal socialism does, that is stealing. Not even Christ himself would advocate as much. One example from Scripture is the story of Zacchaeus or Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. After Christ told Zacchaeus that he was going to stay at his home, Luke 19.5, the man, who is described as a chief tax collector and a very wealthy man, the man exclaimed, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken... Anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold, Luke 19.8. For that, Christ responded, this day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he is also a son of Abraham. Now, Zacchaeus was considered righteous because he was a son of Abraham, 
not necessarily because he gave half his goods to the poor. However, Marxism would strip Zacchaeus of all of his wealth, and the state would determine its fate. Zacchaeus volunteered half of his wealth to those less fortunate, and for that he received a good report before God. Christian socialism respects and appreciates the natural property rights of man. Marxist socialism and communism, if they can be distinguished at all, are ungodly. These products of Jewish thinking have all of the West, all of Christendom, enslaved today. They are enforced by the state. They force blindness to nationality. And they have a general disregard for moral character. Christian communism, Christian communion, I'm sorry, is not enforced by the state. For Paul, quoting the very passage in Exodus concerning the distribution of the manna, asks that the assembly of Corinth give to the needs of the persecuted Christians in Judea voluntarily. And he did not compel them. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Christianity is not ethnically blind, but rather it is wholly racist, to use a Marxist term. That Christianity is racist is evident from passages such as Matthew 15:24, where Christ is recorded as having said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Or from Matthew chapter 25, verses 32 and 33, where the sheep and the goats are divided by sight. And the judgment of the sheep nations is entirely positive, where the judgment of the goat nations is entirely negative. Neither is Christianity morally neutral. And those who are of reprehensible moral character and who are unrepentant should be ejected from the Christian community, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, so that they may suffer without its beneficence. So there's no similarities between Christian socialism and Marxism. None whatsoever. Neither does Christian community endorse the idea of handouts. There's no redistribution of wealth that's forced so that we could give handouts to people who won't work. In a Christian community, the slothful are penalized. One, I'm sorry, two Thessalonians 3.10. But the workman is to be rewarded. Matthew 10, verse 10. Matthew 25, verses 28 and 29. If one does not work, one does not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul said, Also when we were with you, this we instructed you, that if anyone wishes not to work, neither must he eat. That's simple. There are no handouts in Christian community. Handouts are Marxist. Handouts, liberal social programs, communist redistribution of wealth, those things were designed to weaken the white race, to destroy the middle classes in the West so that the aliens could be elevated. 
Christianity stands against them. This idea was also expressed in the political philosophy of Adolf Hitler and was later implemented in National Socialist Germany's welfare policies. I'm going to prove that from the pages of Mein Kampf, Book 1, Chapter 2. This would be page 24 in the Murphy edition, available at the Mein Kampf Project at Christagenia.org. And Adolf Hitler writes, I do not know which is the more nefarious, to ignore social distress, as do the majority of those who have been favored by fortune, and those who have risen in the social state through their own routine labor, or the equally supercilious and often tactless, but always genteel condescension displayed by people who make a fad of being charitable and who plume themselves on sympathizing with the people. In other words, Adolf Hitler is explaining that it's just as damaging to give handouts to people who won't work as it is to ignore the social distress of people who don't have jobs. Page 27 in the Murphy edition from the same book and chapter, book one, chapter two. During my struggle for existence in Vienna, I perceived very clearly that the aim of all social activity must never be merely charitable relief, in other words, welfare, which is ridiculous and useless, Adolf Hitler's words, but it must rather be a means to find a way of eliminating the fundamental deficiencies in our economic and cultural life, deficiencies which necessarily bring about the degradation of the individual or at least lead him towards such degradation. Real Christian socialism concentrates on getting rid of the deficiencies in society which prohibit men from being able to help themselves such as Jewish usury. That's a good start. Globalism, that's another one. Part of the foundation of good Christian doctrine is the idea that one should devote his life to serving his brethren, which are his kinsmen. Individual sacrifice for the benefit of the race is often merely inferred in the Gospels, but just as often it is presented as an explicit requirement of Christians. The idea of giving one's life for one's people does not necessarily mean dying prematurely for them. However, that too may often be a necessity. But what it means much more practically is the devoting of one's life to their well-being, to the common weal, or to what is of benefit to all. Adolf Hitler's own thought in this area is a perfect product of the gospel, and he often stressed the need for individual sacrifice on behalf of the race, the words of Christ, over and over again. Here are a few New Testament scriptures that elucidate this philosophy. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 17. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. And he doesn't give his life for the wolves. And I'm known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. And he that takes not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life shall find it for my sake. I'm sorry, he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. I must have dyslexia. Matthew 23, verses 10 through 12. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Greater love no man has than this, John chapter 15, verse 13, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It is evident from these scriptures and others, that we are to follow Yahshua Christ's example by giving up, or by at least devoting, our lives to the betterment of our communities. If Christians devoted their lives to their nation rather than to their own self-enrichment, which is what has become of this material world today, how much better off would the nation be as a whole? And Yahweh God would surely reward the individual who did these things. What follows are some quotes from Mein Kampf, which demonstrate that Hitler had fully incorporated this Christian philosophy into his own philosophy. From Book 1, Chapter 10, page 146 of the Murphy edition, the right to personal freedom comes second in importance to the main duty of maintaining the race. From Book 1, Chapter 4, page 94 of the Murphy edition, presented on the Mein Kampf Project at Christagenia. The sacrifice of the individual existence is necessary in order to assure the conservation of the race. Greater love than this No man has. Hence it is, back to Hitler, that the most essential condition for the establishment and maintenance of a state is a certain feeling of solidarity wounded in an identity of character and race and in a resolute readiness to defend these at all costs. From Book 1, Chapter 11, page 168 of the Murphy edition. The readiness to sacrifice one's personal work and, if necessary, even one's life for others shows its most highly developed form in the Aryan race. 
The greatness of the Aryan is not based on his intellectual powers, but rather on his willingness to devote all his faculties to the service of the community. Here the instinct for self-preservation has reached its noblest form. For the Aryan willingly subordinates his own ego to the commonwealth. And when necessity calls, he will even sacrifice his own life for the community. Jewish materialism has caused the division of our communities into groups of egos competing with one another, which have destroyed Christian community. Book one, and we'll talk about materialism at great length in the second part of this program and next week. From book one, page, chapter 11, page 169 of the Murphy edition, in the German language, we have a word which admirably expresses this underlying spirit of all work. It is flichterfullung. I'm probably destroying that pronunciation, but that's okay. Which means the service of the common wheel before the consideration of one's own interests. The fundamental spirit out of which this kind of activity springs, is the contradistinction of egotism. And we call it idealism. By this we mean to signify the willingness of the individual to make sacrifices for the community and his fellow man. To this kind of mentality, the Aryan owes his position in the world. And it's a Christian concept right from the pages of Scripture. And the world is indebted to the Aryan mind for having developed the concept of mankind. The nigger never developed the concept, so the nigger certainly can't be a part of it, right? For it is out of this spirit alone that the creative force has come which in a unique way combined robust muscular power with a first-class intellect and thus created the monuments of human civilization. We need all three to succeed. From Book 2, Chapter 2, page 239 of the Murphy edition, the man who loves his nation can prove the sincerity of this sentiment only by being ready to make sacrifices for the nation's welfare. There is no such thing as a national sentiment which is directed towards personal interests. And there is no such thing as a nationalism that embraces only certain classes. And yes, Adolf Hitler saw and appreciated and sought to perpetuate class differences, unlike Marxist communism. In early America, some of our own most Christian states were founded on the same principle of service of the common wheel, which is what the word commonwealth means. Materialism, the consuming individual hoarding for his own gain and the prospect of his own future security, is anathema to the Christian community. The concept of the egotistical individual the concept of stardom 
is antithetical to Christianity. Both of these concepts are, the, are, are deceptions of the Jewish mind and divide the members of the body of Christ in units which are then in competition with one another. To the Jew, a unified nation, a nation unified in Christianity and in Christian community is anathema. So one tendency of the Jew is to divide society by creating the star or the personality. This fragments the nation into a collection of individuals, each seeking after their own interests and not caring for the interests of the nation. Such materialism and egotism are vain idolatry. It is not a coincidence that the Jewish media calls their stars and heroes idols. The nationalist socialist, that nationalists, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over my own tongue, that nationalist socialist Germany put the sound principles of Christian community into practice is well documented. The following passages are from the booklet, Social Welfare in Germany, by Werner Rehr, R-E-H-E-R, 1938, published by the Terramare Office in Berlin. I'll quote from pages 3 through 7. I'll take diverse quotes from pages 3 through 7. Some notes are from the editor in brackets. Some notes are from me in brackets. In all civilized countries, there are organizations for social assistance which owe their origin and maintenance to the private initiative. Now, this book reflects German policy after the National Socialists came to power. This booklet reflects German policy in action. Some of these, meaning some organizations for social assistance, some of these operate under the aegis of religious denominations and others are carried on by lay associations which have been established to meet some definite social need. The idea which inspires all these springs from the Christian principle of love for one's neighbor, the idea of doing good to others. Then there are social welfare activities which are subsidized and directed by the state, and these are also inspired by the Christian principle. The desire and purpose of all such undertakings is to foster a social policy whereby the economic distress of the individual will be made at least bearable. Thus, the underlying presumption is that economic distress is a permanent condition in which a certain class of the community must live. Should temporary distress arise, temporary measures are generally adopted to meet it. But the uniform postulate on which social welfare activities are generally based is the belief that the poor will always be with us. The preaching and practicing of this principle weakens the moral resistance of those who find themselves in need of assistance. And I would interject a comment that simply because Christ stated it as a matter of fact, does not mean that we should give poor people an excuse to despair. 
which is basically what this document is stating. And so we see the concept of social welfare in Germany is based upon Christian principles, and we will see that. And I continue to quote from the, from the pamphlet. Germany is now endeavoring to establish a new social concept of the state and its functions. This idea is based on a traditional, traditional union between the people and their native land, which is the concept of blot und bloden, or blood and soil, on the hope that by uniting the people into one folk community where class distinctions play no part, but certainly existed and were ex to, expected to continue to exist, that's important in reading this document, by uniting the people in one folk community where class distinctions play no part, it may be possible to find a solution for the social problem in a synthesis between people and state. Unless this, attempts, unless this attempt first wins the acceptance and sanction of the people, in other words, the German government wasn't imposing this on the people, they were sought, seeking their acceptance and sanction, it will be doomed to failure. The state must first secure the willing cooperation of the people. The state, the National Socialist State, its goal is to inspire the people to solve their own problems at the community level and to help themselves, not merely to receive handouts. This free collaboration on the part of the people which is now an established fact and force in Germany, is proof that the people have been approached and won in the right way, and this achievement must be placed to the credit of the National Socialist People's Welfare Organization. This organization has now more than 7 million members. These 7 millions are the sponsor of that work, which shows itself most strikingly, strikingly in the German people's winter help and in the mother and child institution. In this social service, there are nearly 1.5 million voluntary workers. These workers are engaged in teaching the public in a practical way to understand that the need of the individual is an affair that concerns the community as a whole. Whatever help is given to the individual, this is important, must not be given as alms. In other words, German social welfare was not about handouts or the redistribution of wealth. It is the duty of the community to render assistance in cases of need, not as a work of super erogation, which is the performance of more than is asked for, the action of doing more than what duty requires, but as a work that is necessary to maintain the existence of the community itself. Such is the principle which inspires all the activities of the NSV, the Social Welfare Organization, and that principle is constantly kept before the public mind. And I continue to quote, In the Marxist and liberalistic systems, the individual and his needs form the point of central interest, that is not so within the National Socialist Welfare System. Here, the community of the people is the primary and essential object of care. 
The well-being of the community is a necessary precondition for the well-being of the individual. Hitler once declared, we do not say to the rich man, give to the poor, but we say, people of Germany, help yourselves. Now, this section that I've quoted is from the goals and purposes of the German social welfare organization. It doesn't, it, it, it's not from the portion of the booklet which presents the implementation of the programs, but we see the goals of the organization. And German social welfare was not about handouts. It was not about the confiscation of wealth from the rich to redistribute to the poor. It wasn't Marxism. It wasn't the liberal socialism of, of recent decades in the West. It was nothing like any of that. The people of Germany had the means with which to help both themselves and their communities. The removal by the National Socialists of the usury-based currency and the prohibition of speculation in land and raw materials, which is rife in America and the rest of the West, among other measures, ensured that the individuals in the community had the access to the means of production and the tools necessary to develop both healthy communities and healthy individuals. All of which is anathema to the Jewish capitalists and which was why Hitler's Germany had to be destroyed. National Socialist Germany was only putting into practice the concepts of socialism as it was originally conceived. That the producers would control the means of production rather than the Jewish capitalists and speculators. Therefore, the people of Germany had the tools with which to help themselves, and they did. Germany in the 1930s was an economic miracle without money from the Jewish international bankers. Contrary to what clowns like Jim Condit state. Contrarily, in the Marxist system as it was implemented in Russia, the state owned the means of production and really the state was wholly controlled by the Jews. Under the National Socialist system, freed from the world's parasites, all of the members of the body could be healthy once again. Therefore, Germany blossomed while the rest of the West was in depression. Today's Christians must remove themselves from the Jewish-controlled shackles which captivate their political thoughts and reassess both scripture and history if they are ever going to free themselves of Satan. The second part of this program, which won't be quite as long, is entitled Anti-Christian Materialism or Christian Socialism Part 2. It's the editorial of the just released December 2012 Saxon Messenger. And I'm almost caught up on, on, on my time schedule with issues of the Saxon Messenger. I pray that I will be this month. 
I might actually get a January edition out in January since I've been behind for six months. Back in the 1980s, someone, ostensibly some Jew, was selling bumper stickers that read, and I saw these quite often in New Jersey, the man who dies with the most toys wins. This statement seems to be one of the more popular New Age mantras of Western materialism. The luxury sedan, the second SUV, the third Xbox. We didn't have those in the 80s, though. The large flat-screen television in every room. The abundance of what the merchants call consumer goods. Today, the stockpiling of all these things far beyond necessity gives the individual a false sense of value and keeps oiled the gears of the artificially constructed global economy. With this, the international Jewish bankers are happy, although they, were, they are never satiated. Once upon a time, and I really generalized history here, but I had to in order to make a point. Once upon a time, economies were centered around the extended family or the tribe. A man's sense of self-worth came from what he could contribute to his tribe, which was his community. By making extraordinary contributions to his community, a man advanced his own status and his own value. In time of need, all men were builders, soldiers, hunters, herders, or farmers. When a man did well, the community benefited. And when the community thrived, the man did well. The community could not exist without a collection of noble men, and the man could not survive without the protection of the greater community. If left to himself, he may well starve to death, or be robbed and enslaved, or even destroyed by outsiders from other tribal communities. Imagine the Goths and the Huns. The man served the interests of the community, and the shelter provided by the community protected the man. The community was governed by tribal elders, the patriarchy, and those who were most capable among them. This was all a part of the natural order recognized by our fathers and our mothers as they wandered the Eurasian steppe and forests of the north. As those tribes began to grow and prosper, the tasks of men became specialized. While in necessity, every man remained a soldier, only some were builders, others were herders, yet others were farmers. But the patriarchal family and the tribe remained the primary components with which Western civilization was formed. Thus was the case in Rome and Athens, as well as in Hamburg and London. Pride in one's heritage meant pride in the deeds of one's fathers. Those men whose sacrifices benefit their communities so that those communities could in turn build great cities, principalities, and nations which the tribal units had eventually become. That pride is true patriotism an idea which cannot authentically be separated from patriarchy. Two men 
cannot be patriotic together if they do not have common patriarchs. In the natural order, with the specialization of labor within a community, a man's sense of worth still remained in the value of his service to the community. And when men did great things, the community as a whole benefited. Paul of Tarsus would ask, if the whole body were an eye, where the hearing? Where is the hearing? Or where were the hearing in the, in the archaic King James language? However, in an economic context, speaking of the same community, it may be asked, if the whole body were engineers, who will grow grain for bread and cattle for meat? If we do not transfer our Christian understanding to our everyday practices, then we are not good Christians. The man comes into being through the tribal community. The man is a creation of the community and is obligated to serve the community just as the hand or the eye are a part of the body and are obligated to serve the body. If the hand or eye offended the body, it would be cut off so that the body may live, and so it is also with the man. This is the essence of Christian socialism which is the fulfillment of the obligation of a Christian to his community in concert with the community's obligation to protect its members by not letting niggers in the church door, for instance. Not all members of the body can be scientists. Not all can be engineers. But scientists and engineers are raised up, nurtured, and receive their basic educations and get their genetic abilities from the communities that shelter them. And a scientist or engineer cannot exist without the patriotic soldiers who defended both him and his ancestors that bore him. Neither can the engineer even do his engineering without the butcher, without the baker, without the farmer to feed him. The community organism is healthy only when it has all of its parts. When a soldier is a hero, the entire community shares in the benefits of his heroism. Likewise, when a scientist or engineer makes some great new development, the community has a rightful expectation to share in the fruits of that development along with its inventor. In a sense, the development belongs to the entire community, since the community produced the man who made it, and the community sheltered that man and provided him with the opportunity to make it. Without such a principle, communities cannot thrive, but they can only decay. The capitalist system takes the devices of man and sells them to the highest bidder, most often to be removed from the communities that made them, and frequently even to alien lands. For this reason, once great industrial communities of the West are in a state of decay at this very moment, the capitalist 
moved their inventions and their factories to Japan, India, and China. Now people benefit from them who most probably never could have developed them on their own. The disease which has caused this is materialism. Materialism. Materialism is the religion of the new world order, a Jewish world order. And it has been promoted ever since the advent of Jewish capitalism. However, Christ told us that the man who dies with the most toys loses. When he said the Christians should lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust, and rust do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust do corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee in darkness, if, the, if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will love, hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew chapter 6. Christians collect that treasure in heaven by demonstrating their love for their Christian kindred. The Apostle John encapsulated the teachings of Christ when he said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the whole world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We don't necessarily have to die, but we have to devote our lives to our brethren. But whoso has this world's goods and sees his brother having need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how does the love of God dwell in him? My little children, let us not love in word nor in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John chapter 3. As Christ said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He gave up his life on behalf of his brethren. And Christians should devote their lives to their kindred communities in turn. As he also told us, greater love has no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. 
The capitalist system reduces man from the status of being a contributing member of a supportive community to being a mere individual competing for material reward against other individuals in an inadherent cluster of dwellings which continues to exist only under compulsion by the force of the state, which can hardly be called a community. Capitalism and its religion of materialism forced man to compete with his neighbor for his rewards. And it, lo it no longer matters who the neighbor is, since any individual can fulfill the roles of consumer and commodity laborer. Rather than loving one's brother, a man becomes the opponent of his brother because he labors for mere currency credits gained from within the community that he may obtain material objects from outside of the community for his reward. The Christian body becomes a collection of diseased egos working against one another. The end result is the eventual imposition of the Marxist system, which should be evident to anyone with eyes to see the world around them today. Marxism is the other side of the capitalist coin, a coin minted by world Jewry. The Marxist system, like Jewish capitalism, reduces all men to mere consumers and the labor of man becomes a commodity. Man himself is therefore reduced to the status of an object and loses his value and his rightful place in the community. His sense of value, which was once found in his contribution to his community, is then compensated with the artificial value of temporal materialistic rewards. In order to maintain their control of the society, the entire Christian body is ultimately reduced to the status of the foot, and only the Jews themselves are the hands, eyes, and ears. In modern capitalist churchianity, a materialistic religion sometimes called prosperity doctrine is being taught. Prosperity doctrine is based upon materialism, self-righteous egotism, and helps to feed the Jewish global mercantile system. Prosperity doctrine entices people to gamble, going into debt while they hope to be imminently rewarded for simply professing an empty belief in Jesus, while ignoring everything that Jesus actually said. True National Socialism, the essence of socialism as it was originally perceived and as it was implemented, by National Socialist Germany, is predicated upon service to one's community and love of one's brother. Things which are purely Christian principles. Therefore, true socialism is the practice of Christianity within the community as witnessed in the opening chapters of the book of Acts and in many other places in Scripture. True Christian socialism is not Marxism. It is not the so-called social doctrine of the Marxist infiltrated churches.
Marxism is forced communism and collectivism. Marxism, like capitalism, reduces men to mere economic units and the works of men to commodity status with all things valued by the least common denominator, perhaps the Mexican. Christian socialism is the antithesis of Marxism, where man cares not for himself but for his kindred racial community. And the man thrives in concert with his community. The community has as much a stake in the man and as much a stake in the fruits of his labor and intellect as the man himself does. Only the state and those who control it can benefit in the Marxist system because the man has no reward for the true value of his labor. The man cannot advance himself by better benefiting his community through his labor. Marxist ideas are destructive to any community which embraces them. Capitalist ideas are equally destructive. And an economy based upon usury enslaves Christians and is anathema to godliness under Marxism. The state seizes the fruits of one's labor and intellect and gives them to whomever it desires. Capitalism securitizes the intellectual property that should belong to the community which developed it and sells it to the highest bidder, stripping the community of the fruits of its culture. It took a civilization, it took a white civilization to develop the semiconductor. Now the Chinese, who could never do anything with electricity, now the Chinese have it for free. All because of the Jewish capitalists. Incredible. And we fall for that bullshit. Just as well, the capitalist system leads to the same ends of the Mar as the Marxist system led Soviet Russia. Under Jewish capitalism as well as Jewish communism, all Christians are fated to be the slaves of the Jews. National Socialist Germany understood all of this, implemented a Christian economy, and because of this, it was demonized by world Jewry and destroyed by its willing capitalist slaves. Incredible. Yahweh willing, a future extension of this series of papers on Christian socialism, will discuss the evils of stock exchange capital, some of which I've just gone into, which is actually a system recently developed by Jews, and the evils of usury, St. Thomas Aquinas, in a letter to Margaret, the Duchess of Flanders, said that the Jews may not licitly keep those things which they have extorted from others through usury. That. That was in the 13th century. How far Christian understanding has fallen. Capital itself is valuable, and Adolf Hitler often asserted that. However, stock exchange capital and usury capitalism are an entirely different beast. 
and have denuded our communities of their industry. Hopefully I will be able to explain that in the near future. I will be here next week with Severus, Severus Nifelson, to discuss his recent article entitled Transcending Materialism. And I'm sure the discussion will be interesting. I will be here tomorrow night with another segment against the Paul Bashers. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night.